Well, good to be here again. Uh, I want to introduce my wife, Pam, 34 years. Stand up, Pam. And uh, she was there in the early days of Urban Promise. And my good friends, uh, James and Vanessa Russell, that work, many of you probably know them from their work in Wilmington. So you guys stand up. And uh, they've been around forever, and uh, I've known them for, for years. So uh, thank you for your service. And, uh, and Tanya, yeah, stand up. You're a teacher, second grade, first grade, even more difficult. <laughs> anyway, thank you uh, for, for this incredible invitation. Um, I'd love to just read a couple of verses of scripture, but I, I need to share just three quick facts about this before I read these verses. The first is we're looking at uh, the book of Esther today, and three things you need to know about Esther. First of all, she was an orphan. She wasn't born into royalty. She wasn't born a queen. She was an orphan. Second thing that's important to know about Esther was that she was Jewish, although she had concealed her Jewish identity, so nobody knew that she was Jewish. The third thing we need to know before we read these verses is this. There's an edict in the land. Uh, one of the king's advisors had manipulated him to create a decree to annihilate the Jewish people. So we find this woman, Esther, queen in this difficult situation where she needs to unveil who she really is. And so follow me in these few verses, verse 14 of chapter 4. Mordecai, her uncle who raised her, says, Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And Esther, who knows? But what you have come to this royal position for such a time as this, for such a time as this. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for these stories that were recorded centuries ago. I thank you for this queen, Esther, who uses her place to emancipate to save her people. May we be challenged today by her testimony in Christ's name. Amen. So, Pastor Eric, you, you were sharing with me in the lobby. Your, your daughter got engaged last night? Your son. Wow. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it, uh, so we've got some, some children about that same age, and we're waiting, you know, and uh, it reminded me a little of the story about this uh, young woman, she brings her, her fiancé home to the folks to meet them for the first time. And, uh, you know, they have dinner together, and uh, then after dinner, uh, the wife says to the father, take him into the study, get to know him a little bit. So father takes the young man into the study, says, young man, you know, what, what's your future look like? What are you studying? And the young man says, well, I'm studying theology. Well, the father says, well, that's great. My daughter, she's going to need an engagement ring. What are you going to do about that? And he said, well, I'll study and God will provide. The father says, well, my daughter, she's used to living in a house. What are you going to do about that? And the young man said, well, I'll study and God will provide. The father said, well, my grandkids, hopefully one day, they'll need school and food and education. What are you going to do about that? And the young man said, well, 
I'll study and God will provide. Well, father's a little worried, wraps up, goes up to the bedroom. Wife said, how'd it go? And he says, well, I got good news and bad news. Wife says, well, 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 give me the bad news first. And he says, well, he's got no job and no prospects. And she says, well, give me the good news. And he says, well, he thinks I'm God. <laughs> No, nobody under 20 ever laughs at that one. Uh, but, but you're laughing, aren't you? Uh, a number of years ago, uh, I, I got to hear a talk by a gentleman I have a lot of respect for, uh, Gary Hogan. And Gary, a really bright guy, went to Harvard as an undergraduate, went to the University of Chicago, studied law. And when he graduated from the University of Chicago in 1993, he took a job with the Department of Justice. And his first assignment, he was sent to Rwanda to investigate the crimes associated with the genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Doing that for a couple years, he came back to the United States and he promptly resigned from the Department of Justice because he said, you know, if I resign from the Department of Justice, it's not like there'll be any less justice in the world. But he went on to say that if I don't show up to certain places in the world to be a voice for the widow and the orphan, nobody will be there to speak on their behalf. So Gary, in 1995, started an organization called the International Justice Mission, where they mobilized lawyers to be a voice for the voiceless. So one day, Gary was giving a talk to a group much like this, and at one point in the talk, he said this. He said, you know, if God is truly a God of justice, if the heart of God is really just, what's God doing about the injustice in the world? Fair question. And then he went on to say this, and I'll never forget, he looked at the audience, he said, you know, what's God's plan? What's God's plan to make it believable to the world that God is good? And then he paused, and he looked at the crowd, and he said, you're the plan. There is no other plan. Now, I don't want you to miss that today because that's the sermon, okay? So I, I'm going to do a little, something a little unorthodox. I'm going to have you turn to the person next to you, and I, I want you to repeat these words, okay? What's God's plan? Come on, turn to the person. What's God's plan to make it believable to the world that God is good? And then I want you to take your finger and with a little swag, look at them in the eyeballs and say, you're the plan. There is no other plan. Come on. All right, don't get carried away. Come on back. Re reminds me of a little story about this professor at this uh, secular East Coast University, freshman class teaching anthropology, 200 students the first day, and the, and the lecture halls filled, and he's up in the, uh, the, the lectern and uh, looks out at this group of freshmen and says, you know, today I'm going to prove that God does not exist. And there's silence, and, and the uh, professor looks up and says, okay, God, if you really exist, I'm going to give you 15 minutes to come knock me out of the lectern. Freshmen are just silent. They don't know what's going on, and so five minutes go by. Come on, God, if you're really there, come knock me out of the lectern. Ten minutes go by. Come on, God, you're not showing up. If you're really there, come knock me out. Another three minutes go by. Finally, there's two minutes. Come on, God. Finally, this freshman walks down out of the audience, right hooks the professor, knocks him cold. 
30 seconds later, he comes to, and he looks at this kid and says, what are you doing? Why'd you do that? Kid says, well, God was busy. He sent me instead. I mean, that's pretty good theology, right? I mean, God's out running the universe. God sends us instead. What's the plan? We're the plan. Now, and inevitably, one of you will come after me in, in the lobby, and you'll say, you know, Dr. Main, you know, I, 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 I'm a five-point Calvinist, and, and uh, you know, I believe in an omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God. Well, I do too, but hear me. And then you'll say to me, are you saying that God really needs me? Yes. God's great love gift to the world is restraint. God chooses to use you and me to be the plan. Now, James will relate to this. Uh, we, you know, we run a mission organization. We recruit missionaries to come and serve in the city of Camden and Wilmington, the different cities. And inevitably, every January, one of those missionaries will come into my office. And it's always in January when it's gloomy and doomy and there's slush on the ground. And they'll come into my office and they'll say, you know, Dr. Main, love your work here, but I'm really feeling God is calling me somewhere else. I had a guy come in a few years ago, and he said, you know, I really feel God's calling me somewhere else. The sleet's coming down outside. I said, where's God calling you to? He said, well, West Palm Beach. <laughs> I said, really? I said, well, who's going to, like, feed and tutor and mentor the kids in the program? And he said, well, God will send somebody else. And then I looked at this guy and I said, well, what if God doesn't send somebody else? And then, Eric, this is the line that just gets under my skin. He looked at me with all seriously, seriousness and he said, well, then I guess it's God's will. Really? Really? I had to close a program in South Camden with 50 kids. I lost 50 kids to the gangs and the drug dealers. And you have the audacity to say that that's God's will? Oh, Christians, we love to construct these little theologies, don't we? To appease our conscience and justify our ambivalence. What's God's plan? We're the plan. There is no other plan. You know, we, we run this mission organization, and for us, the last three weeks of every calendar year are, are super important to make it fiscally. And it's an exciting time, and I, I always get some of the mail. And, uh, you know, I, a few years ago, I'm opening up these letters. And I open up this letter, and they're, uh, you know, I unfold it and pull it out. There's a $25,000 check. Now, now, that may not be a big deal for Valley Point Church, but for Urban Promise, you know, and Eric, I'm thinking like, okay, I can pay down the utility bill, you know, catch up on the insurance premiums. We might even have a little left for, for payroll on Friday, and I'm excited, and I pull the note out, and it says, Dear Mr. Maine, please take this gift and share it with your staff for Christmas bonuses. I'm like, no. <laughs> we got bills to pay. Not Christmas bonuses. 
But, you know, I had to, you know, honor the integrity of the donor. So I, we had 50 staff. I divided it by 50, took the taxes out. Every missionary, every staff worker got a $473 Christmas bonus. And I got to tell you, it was like people were dancing in my office. They're crying. They're hugging me. I mean, it was like they'd won the lottery. Exciting times. So people go off on Christmas break. They come back. One of my staff comes into the office and says, hey, did you hear what Brent did with his Christmas bonus? I'm like, no. She said, well, he hired a lawyer. I said, he hired a lawyer? I didn't know Brent was in trouble. And uh, she said, no, 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 no. Brent was discipling this kid named Andre, 15-year-old kid. And he got picked up on this drug sweep few days before Christmas. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just in the wrong neighborhood. And Brent could not bear the idea of Andre spending Christmas in prison. So he took his Christmas bonus and hired a lawyer. And I got to believe you guys, on Christmas Eve day, when Brent went down to the courthouse and sprung Andre out, and when they went to church that night, and when they sat in that pew, and when they sang joy to the world, the Lord is good, let the earth receive her king, Andre, 15-year-old fatherless kid, knew that somebody in the universe cared for him. What's God's plan to make it believable to the world that God is good? Brent's the plan. You're the plan. And that's the biblical pattern. Is it not? The Bible is not just a story about God. The Bible is a story about people, flawed human beings like you and I, that receive Christ into their lives, receive the essence of God into their lives, and become agents for God in the world. What's God's plan to emancipate a bunch of enslaved Hebrew people? Moses. What's God's plan to create a people from whom the Christ child will come? An elderly, barren couple named Abraham and Sarah. What's God's plan to birth the Messiah into the world? A teenage girl. And so we come to the book of Esther. Queen Esther. Orphan Esther. Who somehow finds her way to becoming the queen of a country. And there's an edict in the land to annihilate the Jewish people. And so her uncle who raised her, Mordecai, comes to Esther and says, Esther, this is your moment. You need to go to the king, even though it may cost you your life, and you need to be a voice for your people. Think about that. Esther's living the good life. She's got a membership at the spa. She shops at Neiman Marcus. She drives a BMW. She's got a platinum gold Visa card. She even has one of those t-shirts that says life is good in the palace. And Mordecai is saying, give it all up. Take your privilege. Take your beauty. Take your charm. And go to the king. And be a voice for your people. And so with great courage, Esther becomes the plan. And she goes to the king, and the king changes his mind. And the Jewish people 
are saved. And to this date, they continue to celebrate every March, the festival of Purim. Why? Because Esther. Esther was the plan. We, uh, we've been working in the country of Malawi for about 16 years now. Malawi is one of the poorest countries in the world. Small sub-Sahara country, about 17 million people. We train leaders from that country and send them back to start Urban Promise-type programs. And so about 15 years ago, we sent a young man back to start a ministry there to boys living on the streets of the capital city, Lalongwe. And so this young man went back and he started this organization. He rented a little house. He recruited about 10 or 12 boys that were living on the streets of the capital, gave them a safe place to live, got them back in school, gave them two meals a day. So about a year after they started, I went over to see what he was doing, and I met the boys, and, you know, I was talking to them, and at one point I was asking them, what's their favorite food? And I'll never forget, I got to this one young boy, he was 12 at the time, his name was Ernesto, and I said, Ernesto, what's your favorite food? And he looked at me and he said, pizza. And I said, uh, Ernesto, when's the last time you had pizza? And this homeless kid, he looked at me and he said, you know, I, I had it once when I was five for Christmas. So I went to the director of the home. I said, hey, do you think we could get the boys together and maybe we'd do a little pizza party? And he the director looked at me and said, Bruce, it's not like there's a pizza hut on every corner in Malawi, but we, we found this place that made something that looked like pizza, so we load the boys in this little wagon. We go down. We're eating pizza. They're super happy. And at one point, Ernesto, 12 years of age, looks at me, and he says, Mr. Bruce, can you help us? I said, what do you need? He said, uh, we, we, need, we need books. I said, what kind of books? He said, uh, we need textbooks. This is a 12-year-old. I said, what kind of textbooks? He said, anything, math, English, geography. I said, why do you need textbooks? He said, because we don't have them in school. And if we don't have books, we won't pass. And if we don't pass, we'll end up poor, like our parents. So I came back to the U.S., and I shared that with a few churches, a few rotary clubs, and I got inundated with books. <laughs> We shipped them over to Malawi. About six years went by, and I'm back in Malawi. And I go to the little orphanage. And now those 12-year-old boys, they're 17, 18 years of age. And instead of asking them what their favorite food is now, I'm asking them what they want to be. What do they want to do with their lives? And I go around, and I get to 12-year-old, or 18-year-old now, Ernesto. And I said, Ernesto, what do you want to be? And this kid looks at me, and he says, uh, I want to be a neurosurgeon. I'm like, I can't even spell that. How, how, do you, how do you know what a neurosurgeon is? He said, well, five years ago, you sent us some books. And one of the books was about this guy that grew up in the inner city of Detroit, and he became the top neurosurgeon at Johns Hopkins University. And I've decided I want to be a neurosurgeon. I said, well, does Malawi need a neurosurgeon? 
And he said, well, Mr. Bruce, we, we only have one neurosurgeon for 16 million people. And he doesn't even live in the country. He lives in Europe and only comes back when the president summons him to come. So I go to the director after. His name was Gabozi. I said, Gabozi, does this kid have the academic ability to do this kind of work? And he said, he's bright. So I come back to the U.S. and I call the president of my university. I said, hey, got this kid. He has a dream. Would you help him out? He said, well, have him apply. We'll see what we can do. About six months later, I'm back in Malawi. I come through the gates of the orphanage, and Ernesto comes running down the road, and he's got this tattered slip of paper, all muddy, torn. It's an acceptance letter to university in the United States. Evidently, he had taken it from one end of the village to the other, showed anybody who would be interested. So I congratulated him, and we, we came into the little makeshift office. We put the letter down on a table, and we had the, the offer from the school. And I'll never forget, we were about $15,000 short of what we needed to get him here. And I remember thinking, $15,000, that's a lot of money. I mean, we could feed a lot of kids. And then I began thinking, why am I thinking this? You know, in the United States, we'll spend $250,000 to get our kids a liberal arts degree so they can work at Starbucks. <laughs> and here's this kid. He just wants to be a neurosurgeon. But here's what I'll never forget. Ernesto said, can we pray? And there in that little makeshift office, with our hands linked together. This is what this orphan prayed. Dear God, thanks for not abandoning me like my parents did. Thank you for bringing me Gabozi and the safe haven home. Amen. What's God's plan? to make it believable to an orphan kid that God is good. Gabozi is the plan. Well, I came back to the U.S., needed $15,000, spoke at a private school just outside of Philadelphia where the kids pay about $40,000 a year to go to school, spoke to their senior class, told them the story about this kid wanted to go to college. Afterwards, two seniors came up to me, two young Jewish girls. And they said, Mr. Maine, he's going to Dartmouth. She's going to Temple. She's going to UPenn. He's going to Columbia. We want Ernesto to go to college. We're going to raise that money for you. And so eight months later, Ernesto Shakazulu got on his first airplane, landed in Los Angeles. I had the privilege of dropping him off at the school. The hot water in the dorms wasn't working that weekend, 
But when he saw me, he said, Mr. Bruce, <laughs> there's water that comes out of the wall. And it's absolutely wonderful. Well, he didn't become a neurosurgeon. Couldn't get through organic chemistry. But finally, we did get him across the finish line. And he's back in Malawi working, reaching street kids in the capital. What's God's plan? To make it believable to the world that God is good, you're it, we're it. If Jesus believed that God would take care of the injustice in the world, why would he have said things like this? You worship, you tithe, you pray, but you forget the weightier issues of the law. To do justice, to have faith, to love mercy. Each one of us has been given a royal position. If you don't believe that, come talk to me. And I will take you to Honduras or Malawi. And you will see what you've been given. So my prayer is that you will take this message to heart and realize that you've been given a royal position for such a time as this. Let's pray. Gracious, loving God, we thank you that you trust us. You choose to use people like us to reflect your image, your heart, your goodness, your love, your grace to the world. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to be part of your plan. Be with us now, I pray, as we go out into the world to remember that we are the plan, to make it believable to the world that you are good. Amen.